Hello everyone and welcome to the Horse.com's Ask the Vet live event on horse adoption and rescue brought to you free by the Bureau of Land Management's Wild Horse and Burrow Program. Visit them online at www.blm.gov. I'm Christy West, digital editor and producer for the Horse.com and joining us today to answer your questions about this topic are Dr. Julie Wilson, president of Turner Wilson Equine Consulting, LLC and Dr. Al Kane, Senior Staff Veterinarian with the Bureau of Land Manage Management's Wild Horse and Burrow Program. I want to thank you all for joining us today. And as always, we've received way more questions for this event than we can possibly answer in the time we have. But we've picked out quite a few to cover the major topics that you asked about, including the adoption process, selecting the right horse and rescue group to work with, common health issues with rescued horses, wild horses and burrows, and starting a rescue. Once we're through with those, if we have time left, we'll move on to some live questions. And if you have a question, you might want to hang around just a little bit to see if we already have one, a similar one. And if not, please type your question into the chat box at the bottom of the control panel on your screen. Please note that if you send in your question already, you do not see, need to send it in again now. And uh, hi, Julie. Hi, Al. Thanks for joining us tonight. Hi, Christy. Glad to be here. <laughs> yeah, hi, Christy and Julie. How are you? <laughs> very, very well. Um, our first question is from Kathleen in New York, who would like to know, how has the ban on slaughter affected the number of horses up for adoption? And uh, before we jump in to an answer on that, I do want to let you know that a couple of months ago we had uh, one of these sessions on unwanted horses specifically. So you may want to check out the archive of that at uh, www.thehorse.com slash askthevet. That's ask-the-vet. Uh, Julie, Al, anything to add to that? Nope. Nope. No, I don't think so. <laughs> okay. We'll move on. We've got a lot of questions tonight. Our next question is from May in Maryland, who would like to know, um, as speaking from a rescue group's perspective, um, how do we get owners to owners and potential adopters to understand that rescue does not necessarily mean defective and that job loss or any number of factors can force owners to give up perfectly good horses? Um, I'd love to answer that one. I think rescues oftentimes forget that in their marketing they need to stress that so many of these animals are just needing to be rehomed. So often there can be just a wonderful family horse in this group where uh, the training and everything is there, it just needs a home to have somebody to love them. And the good rescues do a combination of rehoming as well as helping the animals that do indeed have to be rescued from a bad situation. Very good. Um, and our next question is from Buffy in Wisconsin. Would like to know how to make the public more aware of unwanted horses in need of adoption. I'll answer that one again too. I think that all of us as horse loving people need to encourage friends that um, think they might be looking for a horse to consider looking at a shelter or rescue organization first. I think too if we have any contacts with the media encouraging them to look into the stories, that would be great. There's a rescue that I've had the privilege to work with in Wisconsin, for example, that's going to have um, one of the big Milwaukee papers come out and do a story on them. So I think those opportunities are great and obviously need to be encouraged more. Absolutely. And promote those horses. All right, Fiona in New York would like to know, how can owners and trainers of racehorses be encouraged to stop racing horses while they're still sound for a second career? 
That's a tough question because sometimes the owners are fairly far removed from the day-to-day -day life of the horses. I think that programs like Cantor that's operating on a number of the back stretches across the country are doing a good job of trying to encourage that mindset. I completely agree with it. I think too that we will see more organizations starting up that are trying to facilitate um, horse new homes. Um, I don't think anybody should expect horses to just be given away, but certainly sold for a, a market value price would be great. We have uh, an organization like that here in Minnesota called the Minnesota Retired Racehorse Project, which is trying to do just that. They are present on the backstretch. They talk to the trainers. They say, hey, we're here. If you've got a horse that needs to move on, let us know. We'll help you find a buyer or somebody to adopt it if indeed they do want to just give it away. Very good. We're going to move on to some questions about rescue organizations. Uh, one of the most popular questions that we received for tonight's session was, what is the best rescue in XYZ area, in particular uh, towns or states or whatnot? Uh, can you, we're, not going to, we don't, we're not going to talk about the rescues in all those different areas because we could spend all night on that. But um, Al, Julie, could you let us know some tips for maybe finding a good rescue? Well, it's a good question, Christy. I think um, it, it's hard to know about all the different facilities across the United States. I think some states have started to list um, rescue facilities in the state. Uh, there's been discussion of, of licensing of facilities or registration of facilities, but I'm not sure if any have actually progressed that far. Um, I know the American Horse Council, their Unwanted Horse Coalition, has a directory of rescue facilities, most of which I think also do adoptions. Um, but there's no real national endorsement or registry program that I know of. Um, there is a, um, a rather, I think it's almost an international program that, that Julie mentioned the other night when we were discussing this, uh, and, and I, I'll let her comment on that. But I guess the first thing I would do is encourage people to to talk to their friends, their veterinarian, their farrier, uh, people that you already know and trust and get their advice and follow their lead on, uh, on where to look in your area. Yeah, I would agree with Elle's suggestion. I think um, veterinarians usually know who really does the right things by their horse, calls when they need you, that sort of thing. And again, your horse council, if you've got a strong horse council in your state, that's an option too. There's also a program that we'll have the link in a later slide for you, um, the Unwanted Horse Veterinary Relief Campaign that was started by one of the vaccine manufacturers that actually um, provides vaccines for rescues that are recommended by their veterinarian. So if you're looking for a rescue and you see that they participate in that campaign, maybe there's uh, some news about it on their website, um, that would be another plug in their favor um, if you've got a choice between several. Most of the good big rescues are organized enough that they participate in that program. All right, very good. And I just uh, brought up that screen with a number of links that you all might find useful. And before we move on to our next question, I'd like to ask a quick question of our audience. Um, have you ever adopted or rescued a horse? Um, while everybody's filling that in, we're going to move on to our next question. Uh, Taylor from Pennsylvania asked, do you think it's wrong for a high school student, I suppose, or anybody, to adopt a horse and then return him when she goes to college? 
Um, I'm happy to answer that one. I think so many of our rescues right now are really crunched for room that having somebody take a horse and adopt it, love it, take good care of it, train it, really makes them more adoptable when they return to the rescue. So that's the positive side of a rescue that has that kind of policy where you can always return the horse, no questions asked, should your circumstances change. Um, certainly the hope would be that the young person falls in love with the horse and finds a way to keep them, but I think still, even if it's just a short-term couple of years adoption, it still does the horse a lot of good. I think one thing too, I, I, I've often encouraged people to look at leasing horses if they only have a short-term kind of availability to, to ride and enjoy the horse and maybe they can help out another horse owner that, uh, that has a horse that meets their needs and enjoy it for a few years and, and that way it's, uh, it's a little more stable for the horse. It's certainly if people have the skills to, to help with their tra training, like Julie said, uh, they can return it or foster it for a short period of time. That's a good thing too. All right. Thank you for that. Very good, good points. Um, we've got a couple of similar questions uh, from Nicole in Ontario, Canada, Debbie in New Mexico. Um, how can rescues be monitored and is there any national credentialing for rescues? Another um, that's very popular a, question. <laughs> yeah, and I think it's, it comes back into what constitutes a, a good rescue. And for the most part, the rescues are not monitored. There just isn't governmental power to be able to do that. So I think they rely pretty much on public opinion. So if there is indeed a problem at a rescue, should you discover it, then I think you need to um, report it to um, whoever's the appropriate authority in your area. At the moment, as Al mentioned earlier, there really isn't any national credentialing for rescues. But again, if they are participating in some of these programs that require certain criteria be met, that's um, a good thing. The Global Sanctuary Federation of Sanctuaries has pretty stringent criteria for a rescue to become a member. And there aren't that many horse rescues on their website, but it's worth having a look at to see if there's one near you. All right, very good. And Michelle from Colorado asks, what attributes of an equine rescue do you feel best impact the organization's efficiency? And I believe this is probably a researching question as well. Um, I think the suggestion that high adoption rates are usually a good reflection of an organization that's doing a good job and um, meeting the needs of the community and the horses. I think too the ones that um, I have experienced as having the best care, the best fundraising, doing the most for the horses, usually have a great volunteer contingent. Um, people that really believe in the mission of the rescue are willing to go out and fundraise, help put on events, come and help when there's fence that needs fixing, or even you know just walking that overweight horse that needs to lose some weight so it doesn't get laminitis. So that would be some of the things I would look for as well as the health of the horses while they're there. Thank you for that. And uh, again about researching rescues, Margaret from New York asks, how do you obtain a copy of a rescue's financial statement? I think one thing you can do is, is just approach the rescue themselves and ask them for it. Uh, a, a good reputable rescue or adoption uh, facility that's a 501c3. Uh, many of them post those on the web, on their websites, or if you ask them for a copy, they'll share it. Um, you can also um, search on the internet for what's called the IRS Form 990, 
and that's the tax return for an organization exempt from income tax. Um, there's a search engine operated by a, a group called GuideStar. It's www.guidestar.org. Um, and that search engine pretty quickly returns um, an actual copy of the IRS form uh, for nonprofit organizations of lots of different types. Uh, there's also a, another search engine called 990 Finder. And um, I just did a Google search on, on 990. And if you do 990 Finder, you'll go right to that uh, search engine. All right. Thanks for that. And uh, real briefly, the results of our poll on rescue. Have you ever adopted or rescued a horse? 39% uh, of you have adopted a horse from a rescue group. 43% have adopted a horse from an individual. 4% of you have so far adopted a wild horse or burrow from the BLM. 12% Oh, we need to see that percentage go up. <laughs> well, maybe it's we way can too tiny. <laughs> maybe maybe after homes. tonight. Maybe. We'll find some homes for those horses. Um, 12% of you have adopted horses from other sources, and so far 24% of you have not yet adopted. All right, and we'll move on to our next question. Uh, Laura from Virginia. This was actually another popular question. Um, how do you report illegal activities of a disreputable rescue? Well, I think if something illegal is going on, uh, you need to call the police. Um, normally, it's the, the county sheriff's office that has regulatory authority over animal welfare issues. Um, certainly if there's, uh, if there's something illegal, whether it's uh, not obtaining horses legally, uh, shipping them illegally, et cetera, um, that should be reported. And uh, sometimes it takes more than one phone call because you might not find the correct authority. But I usually start with the sheriff's office. Uh, they usually handle animal control issues. In a state that has a, uh, a brand law, uh, they have a state brand board, and what that refers to is it's mostly the western states, but the western states regulate livestock ownership, um, whether an animal is branded or not, based on a an inspection, a brand inspection, and that's usually done by either the brand board or the Department of Agriculture, and they usually handle uh, livestock theft uh, complaints as well as um, uh, horse uh, horse theft complaints and complaints regarding uh, animal cruelty or other illegal activities um, can be reported often to the State Departments of Agriculture as well. But sometimes it takes more than one phone call, so you just have to be persistent, I think. And I think, too, it's going to vary, as Al suggested, depending on where you are. Here in Minnesota, you can also call the Animal Humane Society directly. Um, they will usually work with the sheriffs and the county where the complaint is being made. But I think, too, if, the more you can document, the more serious they're going to respond to you. So that's something to think about as well. But remember, you can't go trespass. Um, that gets you into trouble. But if you can you know, take a picture with your cell phone from the road, if you see a horse that's too skinny or you know, have a concern, those sort of things can be really useful to get some action. Um, particularly if the humane agents are way busy and uh, you want to try to push the issue up the priority list for them. All right. Good points. And our next question is um, from Sarah in New Jersey who would like to know how can we screen adopters and potential rescuers better to ensure that they really know what they're getting into and that they have the resources to take care of these horses? 
That's a pretty common question. Also, I think it's a challenge. Um, there aren't any driver's license for horses for horses that help people demonstrate they know how to operate them or care for them. Um, I think some people get in over their heads uh, fairly quickly with you know financial situations change and living circumstances change and and a horse is a big commitment. Um, I think you know if a rescue is is in the adoption business then they need to be good about documenting uh, who they're adopting horses to. They need uh, something like an adoption application that records who the adopter is, where they live, where the horse is going to live, who they're going to use for their veterinarian, their farrier. Um, if it's a boarding facility, I think it's important to make sure that the, that the boarding facility is on board and actually has a spot reserved for the adopter. Uh, the BLM actually requires, in many cases, an inspection or a letter from a boarding facility uh, just to make sure that they're willing to accept a wild horse or burrow. Um, the BLM application is on the internet, and I think you can, you know, borrow ideas from it, and it's used to screen adopters um, to to make sure that they, you know, are aware of the resources that go into caring for a, a horse or a burrow. That's that's one good place people might start. And this is, Julie, if I could just add in, too, I think everybody starts out with the best of intentions, um, but the follow-up is really challenging, particularly if people are coming from a distance to adopt. Um, getting back out to their place to see how the horse is doing is, is difficult. So maybe, again, this is a way you could help being a volunteer and follow up with them for some of the adoptions. Absolutely. Um, our next question from Gina in Iowa, who would like to know, how does a new horse rescue operation recruit a facility veterinarian, uh, potentially at reduced rates? Uh, that's a hard question in this economy. I know so many veterinarians that are struggling right now, uh, particularly some of the recent graduates that just have really huge educational debt. But I think if you ask around, you will find the veterinarian that is willing to you know, discount their time to some degree to be able to help out. Um, and again, sometimes if you can ask other people with rescues, they might be able to tell you. Our biggest rescue here in Minnesota has two veterinary practices that routinely give them a slight discount, um, another one that's doing some work for free. So it's just a question of being bold and do asking them, say, you know, are you willing to consider you know, reducing my bill by a percentage for being a nonprofit. Yeah, I think I think everybody has to understand the the demands on the on the veterinarian's time and and their uh, you know need to to pay bills as well. Typically, when I was in practice, you know, most of the veterinarians in the area had a couple of rescues that they worked with, and you couldn't expect one veterinarian to have six or eight different rescues that it was providing services for at a, at a greatly reduced rate, but most of the time they have one or two that they work with and it kind of spreads the the uh, the load out a little bit among practitioners in the area. So I think you just have to, to keep looking around. Yep. There's one of the rescues that um, I've worked with that has uh, immediate needs and they will actually fundraise for a horse's medical care if they've got one that's going to have, um, you know, some out of the ordinary costs. So um, I think 
you can sort of turn it around and use the need as another tool to try to attract supporters and some dollars. Yeah, that's a good point. Oh, very good. I've definitely seen a number of those requests. Um, next question from Jean in Ohio. would like to know, how do you get your local Humane Society to work with you and follow through? I'd love to tackle that one if I can. I think that um, this is where our public um, voice can be useful to get them to um, really follow through because, as I mentioned earlier, sometimes they are so busy that the horse cases can get bumped down on their priority list when they really need to come up. Um, we have two that work with our Humane Society here and they have very different styles. One is great at going back, he likes to be on the road, follows up, works really, really persistently. And um, it would be great if everyone could be like that particular gentleman, but um, if you don't succeed with one, I would suggest you try going to their supervisor or to see if by chance there's another one. And the same thing will happen with the sheriff's departments. In some counties, they will be just great. and In other ones, they'll go, no, it's not my problem. And one of the things that we've run into is if the horses need to be seized and taken off the property, the county has to foot the bill. So then the state of the county treasury sometimes impacts whether or not they're willing to actually take responsibility for the animals that need to be rescued. All right, very good. And uh, one last question about rescue groups from our live audience. Uh, Shirley has a question about uh, are breed-specific rescues an improvement or a hindrance to the problem overall, do you think? I think I really like the breed-specific approach. I think it helps build enthusiasm and, and support for, um, for different groups of, of horses. We see a lot of breed-specific work in dogs. Um, and we're starting to see more of it in horses. I, I kind of like the concept. Yeah, I think too it has the advantage for some of the larger breeds that you can then go to some of the other organizations. The thoroughbreds are a great example. And then actually ask them for support money and sometimes it's very useful. Absolutely. Having adopted my dog from a breed organization, I'm a, I'm a supporter of that. All right, we're going to switch gears a little bit and talk about the adoption process and some fostering as well. Uh, T from Texas just has a comment, just like when trying to buy the right horse, you should find your match. And I believe, Al, you've got some comments on that. Well, it's a real challenge. I think uh, generally I kind of agree with the, the idea that um, a real novice uh, horse owner or, or rider should not start with a, with a green horse but I have seen exceptions to that. We found that success is really proportional to how much time people put into training the horse, working with it, and caring for it over the long term. And sometimes we've had some real novices that do very well. Uh, they start with a blank slate, and particularly when they're working with a young horse, as long as they get uh, the help they need when they get stuck, they ask for help. Um, sometimes because they don't have any preconceived ideas of how it should go, they do very well. Um, they tend to be very dedicated and put in a lot of time. I think um, the, the most important thing is if you're not making progress, ask for help. Um, in the case of a BLM horse, you can ask BLM. You can start with a horse that has some training, uh, either through something like a, an extreme Mustang makeover or trainer incentive program. 
the BLM also has a lot of training programs where horses are either halter trained or saddle trained. And, um, and so you can start with a horse that's not completely green. But even in a domestic horse, um, if you get stuck before you get hurt, before you get frightened, and before you get discouraged, um, ask for qualified help and, and continue to, to make sure that you make forward progress with your horse. Absolutely. And um, in, in between, for our next question, I'm going to ask another quick poll of our audience. Have you ever attended a Bureau of Land Management satellite wild horse and burrow adoption in the last two years? And if so, how far away was it? And our next question is from Kathy in Ohio, who would like some information on uh, where and how to adopt a horse for her grandkids. I think it's a wonderful sentiment to get your grandchildren involved with the horses. Hopefully their parents are supporting this idea as well. Um, for the kids, it a lot, it's going to depend on their ages and how much of a commitment they have. I would certainly consider looking at one of the breed-specific adoptions, like the standard breads, who tend to be pretty bomb-proof, and there's lots of standard breads in Ohio. That might be a good place to start. Um, you can look on um, the web and just Google standard bread rescue and something is likely to pop up. But I think the main thing that needs to happen here is figure out what kind of size or degree of training you need and then find a local rescue and go talk to them and be very frank about the children's age, their abilities, who's going to be looking after the horse. And a good rescue will help you sift through what they might have available to see if they have one that's a good match. I think those are excellent points and it's maybe would want to be a little bit nervous if somebody just tries to push off the horse, the first horse you see if you're not very experienced and want them to work with you for sure. Um, next question from Shirley, who would like to know if there is a recommended source for wording of adoption and foster contracts. Any sort of templates out there? Hmm. Um, Al, you want to that's take a, that? Yeah, that's another. Well, it's another. It's another common question, and I think um, I've not seen any sort of general suggestions on adoption contracts. I'm very familiar, obviously, with the BLM's adoption agreement. And I think uh, there are some aspects of that that people could borrow and modify, you know, to fit their own their own needs. Um, Julie made the point earlier. I think if if there are sort of large, well-established, well-respected rescue and adoption programs in your area, I can't imagine they wouldn't share with you, um, you know, what they use, and then it can be modified to suit your needs. Um, Obviously, the other option is to go and, and hire an attorney and, and, and do it that way, but I think that's going to be costly and um, probably going to take a long time to, to make sure they understand what the goal really is. So um, I guess I, I'm not an attorney. I'm a veterinarian, so I don't have the best answer, but that's where I'd start. Yeah, there are, is actually a, an association for lawyers that practice equine law. So if you did need to go the attorney route, that might be a good starting place to see if there's an attorney in your area that's a member of that association. Yep, good idea. All right, very good. And I'd like to share the results of our poll on attendance at uh, Bureau of Land Management Satellite Wild Horse and Burrow Adoptions in the last two years. 8% of you have attended one uh, within 50 miles of home. 6% of you have attended one within 151 to 100 miles of home. Nobody's gone any further away from that. 73% uh, of you have not attended an adoption at all. 
and 13% have not attended an adoption in the last two years. Uh, on to our next question. Um, Amy in New York would like to know if there, you have any special advice for private or free adoptions. I don't think there's any such thing as a free horse. The American Horse Council's Unwanted Horse Coalition has put out a marvelous brochure about owning a horse and the estimate in there is that you better be able to set aside about $2,800 a year for looking after that horse. But coming back to the specifics of this question, I think you need to know what you're getting. Um, hopefully you wouldn't adopt from somebody you didn't know who might be foisting some really serious medical issues on you. Um, and I think if you're going to make the commitment with your heart as well as your pocketbook, it's still a reasonable thing to get a veterinarian's input on the horse before you actually run off with it. Absolutely. And uh, Katrina from Illinois would like to know if most rescues will let you foster a horse at home before adopting it officially. I think that's a, a great um, intermediate step if you're thinking of adopting. Almost all the rescues are desperate for more foster homes. They will have some criteria about what you need to have to provide for that horse in terms of safe fencing, a barn, who the veterinarian's going to be. And as suggested by the question, um, oftentimes the people that have agreed to foster the horse find the horse of their dreams and end up adopting it permanently. So great question. Thank you for that one. All right, very good. And we are going to shift gears a little bit into wild horses and burrows. We're going to put Al on the spot a little bit. Um, we'll start with a question from Shireen, who would like to from Ontario, who would like to know more about the process of adopting a wild mustang or burrow. Well, that's great. I think there, you know, there's thousands of wild horses and burrows available for adoption. They come in every size, shape, and color that you can imagine. Uh, they're young ones, old ones. Uh, as I said before, there are some that are that are gentled and started uh, as halter trained or saddle trained. Um, I usually start people on the BLM's website, and the easiest place to start is just blm.gov. Um, that tends to be, uh, I think if you look about the third link down, it goes to Wild Horses and Burrows, and then if you look on the right side of those pages, and the way that thing's designed, there's several links for adoption adoption requirements, um, adoption schedules. I think we just saw in the in the survey that uh, most people didn't that went to adoptions didn't have to travel more than 100 miles, which to me is a good sign. There are adoptions all over the country. Um, some of them are just standard adoptions of ungeneled horses. Uh, some of them are events sponsored by the Mustang Heritage Foundation, and they're horses that are a lot of them are very well trained. Uh, the Extreme Mustang Makeover events, if you haven't seen them, uh, look that up on the internet. And it's amazing what some of these trainers have done uh, for this competition. There are also uh, sponsored trainers around the country. Uh, they call it the TIP uh, Trainer Program, Trainer Incentive Program, that help people find horses. So I think there are a lot of uh, places to look for information. and. Um, Maybe we can address some of the more specific questions uh, this evening. Right, very good. And Jane from Wyoming would like to know what are the requirements for adopting a wild mustang or burrow? Well, most of the requirements refer to uh, facility requirements. My computer just went to sleep, but I think uh, Christy might be able to. Um, I do. I've got that pulled up. 
yeah, if you can pull that up, it's um, it's it's very easy uh, to have facility requirements. It's a little more diff difficult in a public program to have requirements on people. Um, that's why the M tends to be on uh, the facility requirements. But basically, the adopters need to be uh, over 18. They need to demonstrate that they can provide good care for the animals. Um, the BLM does have a compliance program where, where a randomly generated list of adopters are checked in person by either the BLM or in many of the eastern states, the USDA helps them. Uh, they also use volunteers to check on adopted horses to make sure that people are providing good care. Um, people can't have previously violated the adoption regulations. They can't have any convictions for inhumane treatment. Um, you can see the other requirements here on the slide. Um, I'm not sure if we went to the second page on that, Christy, yeah. but if you want, you Just can. Just did. Starting Let's, with um, We can look. Yeah, the, the facility requirements. Um, for an ungentled horse, the corrals need to be six feet tall. Um, for trained horses and, and yearlings, they can be five feet tall. For burrows, I usually recommend five feet. I think the requirement's four and a half. They have to be stout. They have to be panels, uh, pipe poles, planks. They can't just be. Um, they can't just be a standard field fence or um, kind of a lightweight barbed wire is not permitted. Electric wire is not permitted. In that initial area where you bring the animal home to, there has to be at least uh, 400 square feet, and shelter has to be available if needed uh, to provide properly for the for the horse or burrow. Um, once the animal's gentled and once it's um, handleable, then the space requirements obviously change and you can put the animal on pasture. But um, it's a good idea to keep them in sort of a, a corral or what we used to call a paddock when I was in the east um, that's small in size and uh, connected to perhaps a round pen to make it easier to, to start your initial training. There are some trailer requirements. Uh, stock trailers are preferred. No two-horse trailers, no ramps. Um, if you need more specifics or need to discuss the requirements, I'd encourage people to call their local BLM office uh, before the adoption. Um, all adopters have to be approved ahead of time and have to sign a, an adoption application, and BLM has to approve it. So if there's any, any question about your facilities, give BLM a call, either through the, uh, the 800 number, which is 866 for Mustangs, or on the internet, look up your uh, your local BLM office. And there are BLM offices that serve the entire country, including the eastern U.S. All right. Very good. Thanks for that. And I just want to let everyone know, in case you missed it in the chat box, we will be archiving this presentation along with the uh, session recording on thehorse.com in the next few business days. So I know there are a lot of links. Don't worry about writing them all down. We'll, we'll share them with you. Um, we're going to throw another poll out since we're talking about wild horses. Um, throw another one out to our audience. If you have not yet adopted a wild horse in Burrow, uh, why not? Let us know. Um, our next question is from Kristen in North Carolina, who would like to know if the BLM does anything to control breeding prior to adopting out the Mustangs, by which I would assume we're talking about gelding for the most part. Yeah, the, the BLM gelding policy has changed a little over the years. Um, to the point now where just about every male horse that's offered for adoption is gelded prior to adoption. Um, we started by gelding more and more of the older horses and, and not so much the yearlings, um, 
but at this stage of the game, uh, even a lot of the yearlings are gelded prior to adoption. We certainly don't encourage uh, people to breed uh, their Mustangs in captivity. There are some of the more uh, specialized groups of, of Mustangs that, that have a following following uh, after they're adopted and, and people want to breed them but um, you know we're trying to we're trying to adopt horses to good homes and and uh, we're kind of discouraging if we can people from uh, more breeding of, of mustangs so we're castrating almost everything before it gets adopted these days all right very good thanks for that and I wanted to mention as well that we did receive a number of questions for this session about uh, BLM management practices we're not really going to focus on those so much we're going to focus more on uh, helping people adopt and rescue horses rather than focusing on BLM practices but if people do have any questions or comments about that Al who should they contact or where should they go well again I, I think you can start uh, on the website um, there are some links there um, there's a quick facts uh, facts link. Um, there's, I think, there's still a myths link to sort of help debunk some myths that are that are pretty common. Um, I, I would encourage people to spend a lot of time looking on the website, uh, look at the pictures, look at the videos. Um, if you have questions, that 866 number, 866 for Mustangs. There are people there answering the phone that will. Uh, answer questions about BLM's various policies and whatnot, and also your local uh, BLM office, your state office. Um, there are a lot of links on the website to find uh, who your contact is in a particular state, uh, Colorado, for example, uh, the New Mexico region, and even the eastern state's regional office. Very good. And Caroline in Virginia would like to know if she she's a, not says so she's a novice writer, and would it be a good idea for her to adopt a BLM? a BLM Mustang if she had the help of a trainer? Well, I think it depends a little on your skill level, even as a novice, um, and, and where you want to go with the horse. Um, just like a domestic horse that needs training or a very young horse, um, a Mustang isn't something that you're going to be able to, to get on and ride right away. You're not going to be able to take it to horse shows right away. Um, I think over time, you can certainly develop a horse into into a good partner. Um, the people that do a lot of trail riding often say it's the best trail riding horse they've ever had and that it bonds very well with them and becomes a, you know, a real good horse. I think using a trainer is a great idea. Um, I also encourage novices to, to look for those horses that are already gentled and, and already trained. Um, many of them you can ride from the first day and um, and go from there and and again the biggest thing is if you get stuck if things aren't going well people usually know it before it's a real crisis um, don't wait for the crisis if you're not making forward progress um, get help and and you can call BLM if you get kinda lost and don't know who else to call um, and they can help find trainers in the area sometimes to uh, to assist and our next question, uh, we already kind of touched on this next one, so I'm going to skip. Um, Marty in Massachusetts would like to know, why doesn't the BLM restrict adoption of Mustangs to actual horse owners or trailers? Trainers, excuse me. Well, like I said before, there's no driver's license for a horse, so it's pretty hard to, to know up front who's qualified and who's not. Um, it's a public program, and the law provides that we offer them 
to the general public. Um, it's easier for us to have facility requirements and to ask questions that you know to help people demonstrate that they can provide proper care. Um, most of the adopters are our current horse owners, um, but we do adopt two novices and and of course more and more we're adopting to trainers through the trainer incentive program. Um, so it's it's hard to put restrictions on a program like this, but um, the restriction comes in the form of the outcome. If people aren't taking good care of a horse, if there's problems, uh, that's why the BLM retains ownership for one year, and if there are problems, the BLM will follow up on it. And sort of along that line, we've touched on this a little bit, uh, but Rebecca from Florida says, what if a BLM adoption isn't going well? What should the adopter do? You mentioned getting some training help. Um, anything else you'd like to add? Yeah, just ask for help. I think sometimes people are afraid to call BLM and say, hey, I'm having problems. Um, I've never seen anyone sort of react negatively to that if you, if you do ask for help. Uh, there are mentoring groups and volunteers that often can be identified in the area. Uh, previous adopters in the area are, are very often willing to, to help people get started. Uh, people even share facilities sometimes and allow people to bring in horses and use their round pen, etc. Um, so I think that's the main thing is ask for help. All right. Very good. And Sam in Pennsylvania would like to know what you should do if you see an adopted Mustang or burrow being neglected. Pick up the phone and let us know. Uh, the BLM does respond to all complaints about the care of untitled horses. Um, once the horse is titled, it becomes private property, and and then it's under the jurisdiction of the regular uh, humane authority, just like a domestic horse. But if it's an untitled horse, uh, we want to know if there's a problem. So uh, call BLM, call that 800 number, uh, call the local BLM office, and um, and discuss your concerns with them because uh, the compliance program is is kind of threefold. There's a randomly generated list that we inspect and then we also follow up on complaints. Most of the time they can be addressed through education and encouragement. If there's a real problem, the beauty of the BLM system is um, they still the BLM still has control over that horse for the first year. They don't have to wait for local law enforcement. If they need to seize an animal, they just seize it and take it. Um, and we do follow up on things like that. All right. Thank you for that. And real quickly, the results of our poll from of our audience. If you have not adopted a wild horse or burrow, why not? 28% uh, of you say it's because you don't have a proper facility. 2% say that you don't think the animal is trainable. 37% uh, of you say that you don't have the time or expertise to train it. 12% say you can't afford animal care at this time, and the biggest category, 42%, said it's for another reason. So, hey, let us know. Type that into the chat box at the bottom of your screen. We're curious about that. Um, meantime, our next question is from Bonnie in Ohio, who'd like to know, would any of the rescued uh, wild mustangs or burros make a suitable companion for a retired 23-year-old stallion? That's kind of a hard one. I think it probably depends more on the on the temperament and personality of the stallion than it does um, the companion. Um, I, you know, you might find a stallion that, that sort of buddies up to a burrow. It may be that your best 
companion for a stallion is not an equine. Uh, maybe it's a goat or a chicken. Um, even that depends, I think, on uh, on the temperament of the stallion. So that's a hard one to, to know for sure. So, Al, can we just twist that question a little bit? What would happen if somebody did adopt a BLM donkey and then didn't get along with the stallion? What do they do next? Well, I think... Uh, I think if they came to an adoption and said, we just want to turn this burrow in with our stallion as a companion, we'd probably question that pretty hard. Um, so I'm not sure if they would, if they would even get the adoption if that, if that was clear what they were going to do. I think if someone has any adopted animal and it's not working out, um, certainly we try to educate them and encourage them to, to use other resources. Um, Ultimately, if all else fails, animals can be returned to the BLM. Uh, we don't encourage it, but um, it's better than than sending them down the road. Um, most people need to understand that if they return an animal, um, most of the time it's going to impact their ability to adopt in the future. Um, it's a pretty rare circumstance where somebody returns an animal and um, and it does not have a negative influence on their ability to adopt in the future. All right. I guess one other, one other possibility that, that works well, I think, is sometimes people will come to us and say, I adopted this animal six months ago. It's not going very well, but I have a friend who likes it. Maybe they could adopt it. That is workable. Um, what, what has to happen is the animal gets returned to BLM and then reassigned to the new adopter. And we certainly are open to that um, because it helps the animal find a good home. But um, within that 12 months, if the animal's untitled, that needs to be done through the BLM, not just uh, give it away to somebody else. All right, very good. And we have a question from one of our live in our live audience. Uh, Kim says she's looking at the BLM website. She sees that you can pre-register for bidding on an animal if you meet all the requirements. What is the average price of a BLM Mustang? I think she's probably referring to the internet adoptions, which um, I'm glad someone sort of prompted me to think about. There are um, there are animals available over the internet, um, and there is there are shipping uh, things set up so that they can uh, be shipped to different parts of the country for pickup. Um, the actual question again was was uh, what is the average price of a BLM Mustang? Oh, the average price. Um, the, uh, overall, the average price is the minimum price. For an untrained horse, that's $125. There are incentive programs that are available at different times where it goes as low as $25. Um, different training programs have different minimum prices. Um, some of them have about a $1,200 minimum price for a saddle-trained horse, but Others don't, and I've seen saddle trained horses sell for or adopt for um, two, three, four hundred dollars. So, um, they, the the initial investment seems, you know, is tends to be very low. But as Julie sort of hinted to earlier, um, that's just a small part of the investment, and people need to realize that animal care costs over the first few years are much greater than than the initial cost. Very good. And Jack from New York would like to know how might someone support the Wild Horse and Burrow program? Well, that's a good question. We always uh, appreciate uh, that 
sentiment, it used to be, and it tends to be difficult to support a government program, but through the Mustang Heritage Foundation, um, there's also another foundation, which I'm probably going to get scolded for not remembering the name of, um, that is more directly tied to the BLM. Um, oh, I can't think of the name of it. It's uh, I'll have to get Christy the link. Um, but there, there's at least those two groups that accept donations um, and, and help support uh, adoption. So, um, so I would encourage you to look on the Internet and uh, Mustang Heritage Foundation. All right. Very good. And um, just to let you know, we do have a number of comments on uh, the, the other responses to our poll on why haven't you adopted a Mustang if you have not. Uh, several people say they already have enough horses or, or whatnot. Some people are kind of planning their attack. Uh, we've got a couple of people with that comment. Um, we've also got a couple of people who say they need a bigger horses, or bigger horse because they're a taller person or whatnot. So, so other people are concerned about a risk of injury. Um, Shelley in the audience says that there are a lot of unwanted horses in rescues and would like to know what's the advantage of adopting a wild horse or, or, or over an ex-race horse or a riding horse. Well, I think it, it kind of depends what you're looking for. I think um, there are certainly things that wild horses are known for. They're known for having exceptionally uh, good quality feet. They're known to do exceptionally well in, in things like trail riding, endurance riding. Uh, recently through the Mustang Makeover and, and other events, I think we've seen that you know they can make reining horses, cutting horses. They come in all, all shapes and sizes. Um, I've seen... 1,400-pound, 1,600-pound, 17-hand Mustangs. So, um, and I've seen ponies. Um, so they, there, there isn't just one type among them. Um, I think people need to just kind of go with their heart. You know, if you like standard breads or thoroughbreds, adopt one. If you like Mustangs, adopt a Mustang. Um, I have a burro. I'm fond of, of donkeys and mules, and so I adopted a, a burro. Um, I think it's to each his own. Absolutely. All right. We're going to shift gears a little bit and talk about health issues or potential health issues with adopted horses. Uh, Danielle in Maryland would like to know if the horse's background, if a rescued horse's background is unknown, what are some typical signs of abuse that you see, and what health issues should should you be on the lookout for? Um, I think one of the first things that's going to tell you if the horse has been abused is that they may be fearful of people. You know, if they're really head shy um, or um, reluctant to come up towards you and establish contact. But the other big health issue I think that worries me the most as a veterinarian is if the horse was in a situation before where it had a significant parasite exposure, there could be untold damage to the blood supply to the intestinal tract that you cannot detect. Um, certainly if it had a very heavy worm burden when it came into the rescue, that would be a type of information I would hope a good rescue would share with you. Um, the other thing that I have seen too much of is sometimes the horses that have been locked in a stall, particularly stallions, um, have had issues with severely overgrown feet. So you want to pay close attention to the feet to make sure they look like they've been getting regular farrier care. Yeah, I think uh, I'd just add, I guess from my perspective, one of the first things I look at is the feet. Um, I think behaviorally, there's lots of reasons why horses, you know, maybe the horse 
was never gentled or never handled at all, and that's why it's fearful. Certainly if they overreact to things like approaching their head, it, it makes you wonder. But there are a lot of reasons that horses might be thin, including they weren't fed enough, um, but also including things like age or health conditions. But there's really only one thing that causes their feet to be overly long and, and, and extremely long, and that is they just weren't well cared for. So um, my eyes go to the feet really quickly. If I see a thin horse with really well-trimmed feet, I have to think, gosh, you know, they've, they've done good farrier care, they're paying the farrier, but for some reason this horse is very thin, maybe we have a health problem. Um, it's probably not just neglect um, in that case. Maybe they're, maybe they're not using a high enough quality hay but um, it's probably not just out and out neglect when it's obvious the feet are well trimmed, for example. So I, that's one of the things I like to look at um, in addition to the stuff that Julie just talked about. And I would throw in there too, particularly in an older horse, um, the teeth. Um, you need to make sure you have a look at those because those can be um, you know, a source of a lot of thin um, inability to masticate the food. Yeah, absolutely. Very good. And Debbie from North Carolina would like to know if you have any particular concerns about adopting horses from a feedlot or a sale barn, health-wise. Um, I have big concerns because you don't know where that horse has been, and he's just been through a very stressful situation if it's a sales barn, and probably exposed to a range of viruses and strangles. So I think it's great if you do decide to adopt a horse that it might have ended up um, turning into food otherwise, but know what you're adopting. Plan to be able to quarantine them wherever you're going to keep them for at least three to four weeks and make sure you have a veterinarian come to look at them because the last thing you want to do is end up introducing a hot virus or strangles in the barn where that horse is going to be going. That's certainly a, quite a risk. Um, I know we're through with most of our wild horse questions, but I did have a couple of more polls to throw, throw at you, one of which is um, if, you've, if you have adopted a wild horse or burrow, has the experience met your expectations? If you don't mind, put an answer in on that. We'll move on to some other questions. Kathleen from Tennessee would like to know if there are any published guidelines or evaluation methods to determine if a neglected horse can be rehabilitated. Um, that's a, a great question, Al. You're going to answer it first, and then I'll put in my two cents worth. <laughs> okay. Um, I think it's a hard question. I think um, there are some guidelines. Uh, UC Davis has a very good booklet called, uh, I think it's called the Equine Sanctuary and Rescue Guidelines, and a link to that is, um, Christy's going to provide that in the slides that, that we saw earlier. Um, and they actually have a little bit of a discussion and a table that relates to things like lameness, uh, the horse's ability to eat, drink, maintain its weight, etc. I'm not aware of any real science-based or research-based criteria that have looked at rehabilitation success or failure. I think that's a epidemiologic study that's trying to be done. Um, but um, there is some good discussion in those in those guidelines. There's also some PGA uh, quality of life and end of life decisions. I think sometimes uh, you know we have to consider what's in the in the animal's best interest, um, and we have to unfortunately consider the context of what resources are available to care for horses with special needs. And if a rescue has a lot of horses they're trying to care for, they have to sometimes look at 
um, how much they can put into the rehabilitation of one particular horse. Um, it's a very difficult uh, question, difficult decision to make. I would encourage people to work with them when, when trying to decision a, just a each session individually on a case-by-case -case basis. Um, only the people with the horse in front of them can make the best informed decision. And I think we all need to remember that um, and sort of, you know, give some credence to those people that are that are really managing the, the horse in front of them. If I could just add, I, I agree with Al. And I think oftentimes as the veterinarian, you're stuck in the middle, but you need to present the options. And sometimes the rescue organizations have surprised me by saying, you know, I think I have a sponsor that will let us take out this cancer eye in the horse and give him a quality of life for, you know, the next six, seven months that might make up for the abuse he's had. So um, again, I think there's a, a range of things that need to be considered and certainly the veterinarian's input and the economics are very important. Excellent points. And Elizabeth from Minnesota is asking a, a very common question, one we received many times over. Um, if I bought, she sees two starving horses nearby offered for sale. If I bought them, how would I start out feeding them? I think when you're faced with this situation, the more you know about what they have been eating, the more guidance you're going to have on how to start out with them. A common error that's made by well-intentioned people is they overwhelm the horses with feed and then they get into really some extreme metabolic problems. So if these horses, for instance, were on a grass hay and I bought them or rescued them to bring them home, I would start them out on small frequent meals of what they were used to and gradually introduce something that might be a little more calorie dense to start helping them gain weight. What we've seen here in Minnesota oftentimes, particularly in the winter, if we bring these horses into an indoor environment and start feeding them, a lot of them are going to run fevers and have very high respiratory rates and develop leg edema because their metabolism is being so challenged by this sudden bounty of food, even when we start them out really slowly. Um, Al mentioned the guidelines from California. Um, they have some recommendations there on ways to start them back. Um, I personally prefer to start them on grass hay here in Minnesota because good alfalfa is hard to find, but it, it doesn't matter which forage source you use, just start slowly and then think about adding the grain um, after they have stabilized and are eating a, a good quantity of forage. I, I think too one of the things that we run into, it's um, I don't know that we understand all the ins and outs of this, but particularly with wild horses, it depends on why the horse is in very bad condition. If they've just had nothing to eat, it's a little different than in some of our circumstances where they've been eating um, plants that, aren't, that don't have any nutritive value, and, and particularly brush, uh, whether they're eating greasewood or sagebrush. Um, those horses don't seem to respond the same as horses that are, that are simply deprived of enough food. So I think, you know, Julie's done some of the research in this area, and um, there are kind of different schools of thought. Most point in in a similar direction, and I and I agree with the approach that she just outlined. But sometimes it's well, I just think we need to know more, or learn more about why the horse is starved and how that impacts the best way to refeed it. I, I don't think we know the answer to that. 
And real quickly, the results of our poll, if you have adopted a wild horse or burrow, has the experience uh, met your expectations. And so far, 9% of you said that, yes, the, your experience has exceeded your expectations. 4% uh, said it's met them. And nobody says that they've, they've missed their expectations, but 87% of you haven't tried this yet. So that's where we are on that. And our next question, also in health issues, is uh, from Wendy in Washington, a related nutrition question. She's adopted a 21-year-old mare who is a hard keeper, and do any of the weight gain supplements work? Uh, I think that's a, a good question without a simple answer. There are a lot of different products out there on the market. Um, your veterinarian is a good source for trying to give you some response on which ones they think might be best for this particular horse. Usually I try to point people towards some of the fat supplements. Um, again, those are sort of gradually introduced, but um, if you find one that's palatable for your horse and they eat it well, you can um, oftentimes get them to improve with that. I, I have my personal favorites, uh, and I'm sure your veterinarian might as well. So uh, it may also be a matter of trial and error. Right. And Tammy in California would like to know about common hoof problems in neglected horses and how you manage them. Um, unfortunately, that's a pretty common situation to have, um, as Julie mentioned earlier, the overgrown feet. Um, feet that are simply overgrown tend to be fairly easy to correct. It may take time and you may not be able to do it all at once. But um, a greater concern would be horses that have a history of laminitis or founder. Um, or horses that unfortunately become unwanted because they have a history of something like navicular disease. Those things are much harder to manage. I think um, uh, they're often not cured but, but simply managed. And I think it, it points to the importance of having a farrier as part of your rehab team uh, in addition to a veterinarian and a trainer. Um, but um, one of the first things we need to work with often is to, to make sure that a horse will tolerate having his feet trimmed and is trained to stand well for the farrier so you can uh, work on his feet. Um, unfortunately, it's a real challenge. And I think uh, the overgrown feet, uh, simple hoof abscesses, they can usually be addressed fairly easily. Um, it's the foundered horses and the horses that, uh, that might become unwanted because they have a chronic uh, hoof condition. Those are the, the real challenges. Very good. And your comment about having the horse uh, be able to, to or to train to stand for the farrier, that touches on our next question a bit as well. Carrie from California says she's got a five-month-old rescue filly with a medical problem, but she's not gentled yet. What can she do? Well, at five months, you're still, you're still not in too big a, a trouble. At five months, so either a wild horse that's not gentled or just a domestic horse that's never been handled, with a couple of people that that know how to handle themselves, they can can sort of lay hands on them and and kind of push them in a corner up against a wall enough for a veterinarian to examine them. Um, the adult horses that aren't gentled are much more difficult, uh, domestic or wild. Um, I would encourage people to look for an appropriate facility, um, again, to ask for help. Um, sometimes if you, in the case of a wild horse, if you call the BLM, They'll help you find an adopter in the area that they know has maybe a small shoot set up. Um, I often refer people to, to go to the local fairgrounds. If they have uh, rodeo fairgrounds with a bucking chute, 
Um, if you can put the horse in a chute and um, squeeze them down a little bit so a veterinarian can get access to the jugular vein to sedate the horse or even anesthetize it, um, you, can, you can get a lot of things done. But the main thing is to be safe. Um, don't let the people get hurt. Don't let the horses get hurt. Um, the respiratory condition in a young horse is, um, you know, is a bit of a challenge because medicating that horse is going to be difficult. And I think it just points to the importance of, of getting the horses gentled early enough and quickly enough that you can provide proper care. And for those people that might not want to gentle the horse but want to still care for it, then I think you have an obligation to build a facility that enables you to care for the horse. Um, $1,000 worth of panels, it's a lot of money, but if that's the commitment you need to make, um, you can build a, a small chute that will enable your veterinarian to be able to treat your horse uh, with panels. It can be done. It's done, it's done by the BLM all the time, and it's, uh, it's done by adopters, too. Very good. And real briefly, our last poll of the evening, have you ever visited the BLM's Wild Horse and Burrow social media sites, web page, or ever contacted them via email or phone? Um, now we're going to move on. We've got, we're actually just a little bit over time, but we're going to touch on a few more questions before we wrap up for the night. Um, the next one's probably one of the tougher questions. Uh, Michelle from New York wants to know that when you're rehabilitating an abuse horse that is dangerous and has injured a number of people, even those that were skilled at, at handling horses, at what point do you give up? Really tough question. Uh, um, I think, as I commented earlier, the, the UC Davis guideline has some discussion of um, rehabilitation decisions. Um, the only thing that I know consistently is you have to do it on a case-by-case -case basis and, uh, and evaluate the animal in front of you. Um, and that, you know, we have to be realistic about the resources that can go into an individual animal um, and safety of, of the people that are going to care for it and the animal itself needs to be a, a top priority. I don't know, Julie, do you have anything to add to that? That's a tough one. Yeah, I think there are opportunities, too, to perhaps look at some form of longer-term sedation to see if that would just take enough of the edge off the horse that the well-skilled trainer might make a little bit of progress. But that's, once again, an individual decision and certainly not an answer for every horse that's being dangerous. Yeah, that's, that's a good idea, though. Very good. Now, shifting gears a little bit, uh, Bonnie in Indiana would like to know if she, she has a horse to rehome and how does she find a safe organization to, to rehome that horse? There are a couple sets of, uh, of questions that have been put together, I think, in the, uh, the AAEP, the American Association of Equine Practitioners, also has a guide for uh, rescue and retirement facilities. And then the UC Davis guide also has a set of questions in it um, that are designed for just this purpose. And I think um, I think it's important to visit places in person. Uh, I think you need to sometimes do it several times and even unannounced if necessary. Um, say, you know, show up, hey, I was in the neighborhood, thought I'd take another look. And that way you're sure that things aren't terribly well staged um, for your visit. Most of the really reputable rescues are just, they throw open their doors and, you know, I've never seen one that, that was really reputable that discouraged people from, from visiting and they want to demonstrate to you 
what a good job they do. Also remember to ask for referrals from your veterinarians, your farriers, as Julie commented earlier, you know, they know the people in the area, they know who's doing a good job and, and um, without saying bad things about anyone, you can direct people to, um, to the ones that you know are doing a good job. Very good. I think, yeah, can I just add one comment too? I know Please. we're running close on time, but I think too there needs to be a distinction between um, adoption rescue groups that will try to rehome the horse, and then there are other facilities that are actually sanctuaries or retirement homes. So depending on what the circumstances were with that individual horse, a retirement or a sanctuary placement might make more sense if the horse isn't rideable. That's an excellent point. Thank you for yeah, making Yeah, that's an it. excellent point. All right, uh, Renee from California would like to know, she asked another common question, what is the best way to get started as a nonprofit rescue and probably even more popular, are there any grants or funding available? I alluded to having that great squad of volunteers earlier. I think you really need to have more than just yourself um, if you're going to be successful. If you've got a core group of people that are like-minded that are willing to support you, then I think you can actually look at trying to start an organization, try to do it correctly, file with the government, work on becoming a 501c3. Then you can, I think, more legitimately ask for grants and the funding. Scarce though it is, it is out there. Um, one of the great things if you've got the right volunteer group is to have a couple of them actually be the ones that are searching for the grants that are available. There's like no government money, but certainly there are a number of foundations that will um, potentially consider a grant, particularly if it's for not just your organization, but maybe for a run-in shed for your organization, you know, something concrete that they can see that you actually um, did for them. Your State Horse Council might be another resource for trying to um, see where there may be some funding available. And then if you're thinking of a breed-specific rescue, then looking to those breed associations is another route to examine. Right. I think so. I, I'd also just emphasize the, the State Horse Council. and the, the American Horse Council has a list of, um, of resources, uh, the potential resources available, including some grants. I don't think there's a lot of money behind them, but it is a good list. Um, I'll give you an example in Colorado, I think it's the Colorado Unwanted Horse Alliance. Um, they gave about $30,000 out last year to a number of different organizations. And like Julie said, it was, it was a running shed here, it was a, a trailer here, um, and, and it, um, it adds up and it's a place to start. Very good. And I do want to draw everyone's attention to the chat box on your screen. I posted a link to an article that we ran recently in the horse.com, on the horse magazine, excuse me, on starting a rescue and some business concerns. You may want to check that out. That link's in your chat box. Um, also, we've got the results of our latest poll in. Have you visited the BLM Wild Horse and Borough social media sites, website, or contacted them via email or phone? Uh, looks like 51% of you have done that once in a while. 12% uh, of you were visiting often. 28% uh, of you had not heard about them. Hopefully you'll check that out soon. And 9% uh, of you have not yet had an interest. Got just yeah, a there, is a, there is a Facebook page. I'm not a, a Facebook guy, but um, there is a BLM Facebook page, which apparently has tons of pictures and videos. And I would encourage people to, to not just go on the web, but use those social media uh, sites as well. Very good. 
And uh, somewhat related to our last question, Stacy in Washington says she'd actually like to start a small horse rescue and combination small horse rescue and youth mentorship program. And might there be some additional funds available to help get that started with the, with the youth program involved? I, I think that's a very worthy uh, type of program to have because you end up helping two groups really um, in a wonderful way. So I think if you go that route, you are more likely to be able to get grants perhaps from things like the Rotarians or the local Kiwanis Club um, that would be interested in doing that for you, particularly if you wanted to also get into some of the therapeutic riding. Um, if there's an organization that um, you could become a chapter member of, that might really facilitate um, being able to get into the pipeline for having some of the medical insurance for the children that really need this therapy cover some of your costs. Very good. I think the, the youth programs are a great idea. The um, the Mustang Heritage Foundation started a, a youth program recently where they focus on yearlings and I think uh, certainly even in the domestic horse world um, there are yearlings that end up um, at, at some of these uh, rescue places and, and it's a particular challenge because they you know it's quite a long time before they can be ridden um, but it's a great way to partner up um, you know a youngster with appropriate supervision obviously but um, it's it's worked pretty well for them uh, for the Heritage Foundation, and I think uh, I think it's a good model. It could work for domestic horses as well. Yeah, and I, I think too, if I could just add, um, if you are aware of other groups, maybe not in your state, that um, have successful programs, they're more than um, willing 99% of the time to um, mentor you in getting your program started. And instead of trying to reinvent the wheel, they can give you some great ideas to get you going. That's a great resource. All right, we've got one more question we're going to take. Uh, we're running over a little bit on time, but we really appreciate uh, Julie and Al sticking around a little bit to answer some additional questions. Uh, Margaret from Illinois uh, says, so what ways do you suggest to help make rescues more recognized, and how can you start? It's a two-part question. We'll do that first. I think the, the, the media is very important, and I think also being present at a lot of the horse events in your community. Um, if you have the volunteers that can have a booth, that would be great. Um, our rescue, big rescue here in Minnesota has a huge booth at our annual horse expo and uh, there are a lot of people that come through that expo that don't necessarily yet own horses yet they're willing to help the horses that need it the most. If Al, I don't know if you want to add anything there. Uh, the only thing, I, I guess it's a small thing, but I really like the uh, the horse magazine, the electronic magazine that Christy works with, they have a, um, in each newsletter, they sort of have an adoptable horse of the, I think it's week. Um, and I always look at that, and I always take notice of what that um, organization is that uh, that's on there. So I think that'd be something to look into. I think it helps bring some recognition to, to the organization as well as the individual horses. Absolutely, and that's definitely one of our goals. And uh, speaking of recognizing organizations, uh, Dr. Sarah Ralston from Rutgers University also is, is online right now, and she's mentioned uh, her program with the partners uh, Young Horses with, that are at risk, so to speak, uh, with students. And it's all, they're also used in some nutritional studies often, so they're, they work pretty hard and yield a lot of benefits. Uh, the website for that program, if you're interested, is younghorse.rutgers.edu. 
Um, the second part of Margaret's question was, uh, how can you start a gelding or euthanasia program to help control population? Um, I'll tackle that one because we've got a very successful gelding program here in Minnesota that um, provides castration to the horses whose owners cannot economically afford it. So we're catering to um, our recognized 501c3 rescues as well as referrals from our humane agents and then any veterinarian in the state can refer um, a client of theirs that they know is in economic straits and can't afford the castration. So it's a partnership between the veterinarians, our humane society and humane agents and also, in our case, the veterinary students who are just very eager to have that hands-on surgery opportunity. Um, the gist of our program has been adopted as the national model by the Unwanted Horse um, Coalition. So all the materials to get you started in organizing a gelding project are actually available on their website. So it's a great resource and you can um, hopefully get going with that assistance. Euthanasia programs, I think, are a little bit more difficult. Uh, California, I know, has tried to get those clinics going. We've pulled the veterinarians in our state here to see how much interest there would be, and nobody wants to participate. We didn't become veterinarians because we like euthanasia, but I think there is a place for them. Uh, we just haven't figured out the right model yet. Maybe Al has a comment on that. Oh, it's it's a very hard, uh, a very hard question. Uh, um, the BLM does not euthanize horses that remain unadopted. Um, they also don't send them to slaughter. That's kind of a common misconception. Um, I think it's important if you're going to relinquish a horse to ask the facility about their policies and their criteria um, if that's going to be uh, something that the facility has to consider. I think you need to ask those questions before you relinquish a horse. But um, as Julie said, this is a, a developing area among domestic uh, rescue uh, for horses, and I don't think we know the best way to approach it yet. I would encourage people to, to start with their uh, local private practitioner and, uh, and really have a heart-to-heart -heart with them about it um, you know, to get some direction. All right. Well, that is all the time we have today. I'd like to extend a big thank you to uh, Julie and Al for their time and, of course, to our audience for participating. Uh, you sent in a lot of really good questions, and this session, along with the PowerPoint presentation, all the links, will be archived shortly on thehorse.com in the next few business days. Um, I'd also like to encourage you to check out more adoption and rescue information under the adoption and welfare topics at thehorse.com, as well as our free horse listings. Uh, we have a little bit less than 400 horses listed right now that are free to good homes. And uh, last but not least, thank you again to the Bureau of Land Management's Wild Horse and Burrow Program for bringing this free session to you today. Uh, check them out if you haven't already at www.blm.gov. Hi, everyone. I hope you have an absolutely wonderful evening, and we really appreciate your interest in rescuing horses. Have a great night. <laughs>